256. Sorry, I didn't record. Why would Natalie Diaz be the poet um, that's the most critically acclaimed of all the ones we've read? Why do you think? Just asking to speculate. There's no right answer. I was going to say her obscurity and how random it is, but how like intense the imagery is, but I guess we've seen that in other poems thus far, so. Yeah, but I think you're right though. What do you mean by obscurity? Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? It's just kind of like abstract, like none of it is really cohesive, but it's all really like jarring kind of like, I don't even know how to explain it. I laughed when it came to the Acme Bomb thing because I think that's from like Looney Tunes or something. It's just so random. Yeah, okay, so like the obscurity of the imagery that's being, like in this poem in particular, Dome Riddle, right? The imagery and the references are call, coming from everywhere, right? Gatling guns, uh, Greek myth, um, we're writing in Spanish. We're talking about Rimbaud, who's like a French author. We're talking about Blake, who's a British romanticist. Golgotha in the Library of Babel. We're talking about like uh, ancient history, right? Talking about your skull as a French kiss sweatshop is just kind of a, an interesting image. You're thinking about your skull as a French kiss sweatshop, right? So we have all of these really, yeah, Austin, we're gonna get to that too, but we have all of these in the chat, um, but we have all of these like really weird images from all of these different cultural reference points that are all jammed together in this poem. And I think um, one of the reasons why she's such a kind of acclaimed poet is because she's dealing with all of these different traditions. This is actually something, Brendan, that you mentioned in your post about a different poem that we're not gonna read, but you mentioned that like, okay, in this poem, uh, she's constructing a story out of the Greek myth of Charon, right? Of the idea that like we go, we kind of row across the river Hades to get to Howe, the river Styx, excuse me to get to how, right? So she's pulling from all of these different literary and historical traditions. It's not just native, right? And that's a really interesting thing about her work that's really different than what we've seen before, is that there's some humor and some informality. Again, the idea of your skull as a, a pleasure altar or a French kiss sweatshop, right? But there's also this like highly intellectual, highly referential, obscure imagery and there's an intensity to it as well. So that's one reason why she's kind of really well known and critically acclaimed. Yeah, but to go to Austin's point in the chat, another kind of really cool thing about Natalie Diaz is that she is like a professional basketball player too. Professional women's basketball player. So like fascinating person. Um, anyways, I kind of want to talk about this poem, but I don't want to read it. I mean, it's not really necessary to do so. I just want to kind of have you think about what's going on in this poem. Tonight I am riddled, <laughs> excuse me, tonight I am riddled by this thick skull, first stanza. And then in the next two stanzas, what do we actually have? Just over and over and over and over and over and over again. What is it? What is she doing in the next two stanzas? Repetition of the word this. Yeah, and the repetition of the word this kind of puts you into this kind of like incantatory or chant-like mode or you just keep going this, 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 this. And what is the this referring to? What is she, like, what, uh, this overwound bone jack-in-the-box, this language mausoleum, 
this pleasure altar, this church of tongue, this museum of tribal dentistry? What are all of these things referring to? Her, um, thick skull. Yeah, right? They're all riddles, right? They're all kind of little riddles, little puzzles that if you tease them out are meant to be describing her skull. And so she's thinking about all of these different descriptions of her skull. What's your favorite? I'll give you a minute. Punch it into the chat. We'll have some fun on this Friday. Your favorite one, your favorite description of the skull. I'm gonna, I'll put mine in too. Punch it in the chat when you have it. Your favorite description of the skull. I'm gonna go simple. I like thinking of the skull as a memory grenade. What's your favorite? I give you a minute to look it over and pick. <laughs> Kieran, does that one kind of really relate to you? Yeah, my high school, just for example, Example had graduating classes of like I think the highest was fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. So. Yep, yeah. and like the the idea of a mania dispensary, like that's that's a really good one. Um, Austin brings us the emoji of the ice cream. I like that. Oh, we got a couple single scoop vanilla head rushes for that. <laughs> these are great, right? Some of these are funny. Like you guys are really picking kind of really interesting ones. The jawbone of an ass. Yeah. Cranium cupboard. That's a wonderful one too. I love these so much. Like, so we're all picking kind of ones that speak to us in a certain way. Of course, Halloween crown, right? Um, a lot of us might kind of in our anxious mood here at the uh, beginning of uh, November, right before the United States presidential election and all of like the last half of this crazy semester might really vibe with the next one that I'm going to put in the chat, which is our skulls as worry contraptions. That one really speaks to me right now. Um, a forever hatching egg. I like thinking about one skull as a forever hatching egg. But anyways, I just want to kind of pull this one out because of a couple of different things, right? The, the language and the references are really kind of elevated in many respects, but there's also a tone of humor to them as well. And what she's doing in this poem is giving you all of these different descriptions, these kind of different ways of thinking about her skull, these kind of riddles for her head, right? And then she ends the poem on a really interesting note, um, which gives kind of um, a certain tinge to everything that's come before. She says at the end, and all this, because tonight I imagined you sleeping with her the way we once slept, as intimate as a jaw, maxilla and mandible hot in the skin, in love, our heads almost touching. You know what maxilla and mandible is? It's like your lower jaw. Oh, wow, a lot of nods for that. All right. All right, human anatomy. Maxilla and mandible are your like lower and upper jaws, I believe, right? So what is going on here? What's the actual scenario or situation of this poem? What compels the poet or the speaker to kind of come up with this ever proliferating list of descriptions of her noggin? The imagination of someone she cares about or loves or 
an ex um, sleeping with another girl. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that kind of like changes really the um, sense and the tone of the poem, it seems to me. Right. Because what it does is it takes this poem that is highly elusive, A-L-L-U-S-I-F, right, highly elusive. Like it makes allusions to a lot of different other traditions and highly elusive, highly imagistic, highly kind of referential, right? And elevated, right? There's a certain kind of intellectual heft to the poem. It takes this kind of like real abstract riddle, right? This thing that we have to puzzle over, this thing that we quite don't quite understand. And what it does at the end of the poem is like, we're up in the kind of clouds of this abstraction, describing the skull over and over and over again in all of these different ways. Every single phrase we could interpret right? And think through, like, of course, like David's rock striking the Goliath of my body, like the biblical references, the jawbone of an ass, like all of these things, we could all interpret these kind of abstract descriptions of the skull. But what the last stanza does is it kind of gets very narrow, it gets very personal, and it gets very intimate. Right? So what's the effect of that on the poem for you in terms of its tone, in terms of understanding the speaker? What, what changes because of the inclusion of that last stanza? Just for you, there's no right answer, but what happens to the poem when we include that last stanza? Any thoughts? Well, for me, it just makes it more personal, right? It actually gives us a sense of the speaker as a kind of living, breathing human person with desires and needs and anxieties, as opposed to just a skull, right? As opposed to just a kind of a person who's thinking through a riddle of a particular part of their body, it actually particularizes them and makes their life and their situation more intimate and more clear to us. So I think it's a really kind of notable way to, um, to like bring things down, right? To an intimate or personal level, right? Yeah, Peyton, can you say more about that? The way you put in the chat? Yeah, it just kind of seems like she's rambling on. And yeah. one way it could just be like her trying not to focus on the fact that like somebody she loves has moved on or she's just like going a little crazy because of it. So it could be either rational or irrational. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking it too, right? Because again, before we get to that last stanza, what we're kind of taken by when we read through the poem is one, the repetition of it and how it just goes on and on and on and on too, but also we're taken by all of the referentiality, all of the elusiveness, all of the intellect that undergirds all of these riddles, all of these descriptions. And then when we get to the last stanza, we begin to think like, oh, maybe this is not a rational person. Like maybe this is the ravings of a lunatic right? Like maybe this is the ravings of a jilted lover, like a mad woman, like who is going crazy. And that puts us in a different mind of everything that's come before as well, right? Jealous mania is a really nice way of putting it, Peyton, right? So like maybe it's not a kind of like really thoughtful intellectual exercise in figuring out all of these descriptions of the skull. Maybe it's actually trying to get us to think about maybe something that all of you have had an experience with is like, you know, losing someone you've loved or seeing someone you've loved kind of move away from you. And then like all of the shit that goes up, goes on in your head when that happens, right? 
like all of the crazy things you think of, all of the kind of connections that you make that are kind of illogical or irrational, like when something like that happens to you. Does that make sense? People had that experience before? Not, to, not asking for examples, but just like, yeah, you've probably had an experience where like somebody that you really cared for has gone away and is with another person and you're like, oh, that makes me feel a certain way. And that's what's happening in this stanza. I personally don't know anything about that. Any other thoughts about this poem? I just really love it. Just for how weird it is. So that's where I wanted to start. And also because it's kind of spooky. Halloween crown. Sticky sweet guilt hive? That's, that's terrific. I should pick, every, I mean, there's a new one for every day of the year. Anyway. All right, let's go on. We are going to get to American arithmetic, right? It's an important poem. I want to talk about it, but we can end with it, right? Because there's a simplicity to it that I kind of want to speak to. But this poem I want to spend a little bit of time on is the last one, which was really, really long, right? Um, I forget the exact title, right? The Water That Is My Body. Um, the, the poem starts on the left here with the Colorado is the most endangered, endangered river in the United States. But I actually want to start with this bigger quote that I have at the top, which I take to be kind of the thesis of the poem. So if you really kind of struggled with this poem or didn't really know what to make sense of, how to make sense of it, the, the poem is really asking and seeking to answer this question. How can I translate, not in words, but in belief, that a river is a body, as alive as you or I, that there can be no life without it? I really take that as kind of the, the motive of the poem. Right, the speaker is asking, how can I actually make it clear, particularly to non-Mojave people, how can I actually make it clear to non-Mojave people and non-Native people that the river is a body, that it's alive as you and I, and that there can be no life without it? That's kind of what the poem is doing. And the poem is like this really complex meditation on the inextricability of the body from the natural world, right? The inextricability of the Native identity from the land. But it's in a different way, let's say, than what Tommy Pico does in Nature Poem, right? You remember from Wednesday, if you listened in or if you wrote your post on Nature Poem, right? Pico's like, I don't want to write a Nature Poem. I would slap a tree in its face, right? Like, I don't want to be aligned with this stereotype of Native peoples as somehow aligned with the natural world. Well, Diaz is doing something completely different here. She's actually suggesting that the natural world and native identity are completely intertwined, right? And so I wanna kind of think through the difference between Pico and Diaz a little bit, but let's read a little bit of this poem first. She says, the Colorado, Colorado River is the most endangered river in the United States. Also, it is a part of my body. The implication there, of course, right, is that her body is endangered, right? I carry a river, it is who I am, aha makav, this is not a metaphor. When a Mojave says, Inyek aha makav ithum, we are saying our name. We are telling a story of our existence. The river runs through the middle of my body. What does the speaker mean? We could just say Diaz here. This is clearly Diaz. What does Diaz mean when she says, this is not a metaphor? What is she trying to get across to us? She's not comparing her body to the river or the river to her body, she's saying it 
is the river. Yeah, that's weird, right? <laughs> this is the nature of the poem. This is the kind of difficulty, the complexity of the poem is that it's trying to use poetry to talk about how something is literal and not metaphorical. She's saying, the river isn't like my body. I'm not thinking of my body as a river. It's not a comparison. It's not a metaphor. It's not a figurative thing. Literally, my body is the river. I carry it, right? But carrying doesn't mean metaphorically carrying. It's literal, right? And so what I'm trying to get you to kind of um, suss out right at the beginning of this poem is that it's profoundly weird and profoundly interesting that Natalie Diaz is using the form of the poem, this highly condensed, highly figurative, highly creative form of language use, right? To actually get across to us an argument about how something is not metaphorical, right? In poems, by and large, what we tend to think of is like, yeah, that's the place where we use metaphors, right? That's the place where we use figurative language. This whole poem, though, is about how the river and the body are not metaphorically related. They are literally connected, okay? So it's kind of an interesting, um, we've often talked in this class, right, as we've done this poem unit, about the connection between form and content, right? About how these two things kind of like reinforce each other or they amplify each other, right? But in this poem, right from the beginning, what's being suggested to us is that like, there might actually be a bit of a tension, like form and content here might be a bit um, at loggerheads with one another, right? And so what the poem is doing over the course of it, and we're not gonna read the whole thing, right? But what the poem is doing over the course of it is it's trying to explain essentially to a non-native audience what it means for the river to be the body, right? How do we understand that the river is a body, right? That the river is part of this speaker's body without immediately going to the metaphorical. How do we understand that the river is a part of the speaker's body without immediately going to the metaphorical? That's what the poem is trying to get us to think through. So she says a little bit later, Aha Makav is the true name of our people given to us by our creator who loosed the river from the earth and built it into our living bodies. Translated into English, aha makav means the river runs through the middle of our body the same way it runs through the middle of our land. This is a poor translation, like all translations. In American minds, the logic of this image will lend itself to surrealism or magical realism. Americans prefer a magical red Indian or a shaman or a fake Indian in a red dress over a real native. Even a real native carrying the dangerous and heavy blues of a river in her body. So let's pick up on um, that fifth stanza there. In American minds, the logic of this image will lend itself to surrealism or magical realism. What is the speaker saying there? What is the speaker saying about the inability of white settler minds to comprehend this image? Why can't we, as white settlers, comprehend this image? What do we immediately go to when we think of the idea that a river runs through the middle of our body? What do settlers immediately go to as a way of understanding that image? 
She says we immediately go to surrealism or magical realism. What does that mean? When we hear of the image that a river runs through the middle of our body, the speaker is saying to us that in the American mind, in the subtler mind, the image of a river running through the middle of our body lends to us a sense of surrealism or magic. What is she saying there about our inability to understand this image? What can't we do with this image? What are we not able to understand about this image? Is it that like, um, because it's kind of like a metaphor, like the river running through someone, we can't picture it because it's not real. Yeah, Kieran, you're right to connect the idea that's happening in this portion of the poem with the claim at the beginning of the poem that this is not a metaphor, right? Because these two ideas are speaking in conjunction with one another, right? So you're right, yeah, we can only think, settlers can only think of the idea or the image as a metaphorical one, as a creative one, as a magical one, as a fantastical one. We can't perceive of this image as a literal thing. Right? so what this poem is trying to get us to think through is that like we as white settlers like cannot imagine, we don't have the creative faculties, we don't have the philosophical underpinnings, we don't have the life experiences to imagine the river as part of the body in a way that doesn't immediately take us to the metaphorical or to the magical, right? What she's suggesting is that like, the river and the body being one is a real thing. It's not a metaphor and it's not magic. And what she's claiming is that settlers don't have the ability to understand that. It comes across as irrational or illogical. But for native peoples, particularly for the Mojave, it's not illogical at all. Okay, so just a couple other points about this poem and then we'll move on. One more slide. So she says over the course of the poem, like over and over and over again, I'm not trying to make a comparison. We carry the river, its body of water in our body. I do not mean to imply a visual relationship, right? She's not suggesting that we carry the river, like actually carry the river. That's not what she's suggesting. It's not a visual relationship. She's also saying it's not a juxtaposition. A body, body and water are not two unlike things. They are more than close together or side by side. They are same, body being energy, prayer, current, motion, medicine. Again, over and over, what the speaker is telling us is that the relationship between the body and the water is not a comparison. It's not a juxtaposition. It's not a visual relationship. It's not a metaphor. Over and over and over again, she's telling us it's real. It's literal. Again, what that should be putting you in the mind of is like, okay, there's a tension here between the content of this poem 
and its form as poetry, right? Because what are poems invested in? Poems, by and large, are invested in figurative language. They're interested in these kind of creative comparisons. They're interested in implying visual relationships. They're interested in juxtapositions, right? Poems are interested in this creative use of language, right? Poems are interested in the magic of language. Poems want to make us think, like the Dome Riddle poem does, about all of these crazy images, surrealistic juxtapositions and comparisons, right? That's what poems, by and large, do for us. But over and over again in this poem, what the speaker is saying is, no, this is literal. It's not a visual relationship. It's not a juxtaposition. It's not a metaphor. It's not magical. It's just real. And so why use the poem as the form for that claim? That's kind of the broader meta commentary of the poem. So that's kind of the philosophical underpinnings of the poem, right? Thinking through like why the poetic form to make this very literal point. And we don't have to answer that question, but that's just a question that the poem asks of us. But then there's also this kind of like broader component too that comes out um, later in the poem and is reinforced or referenced back at the beginning when she says that the Colorado River is the most endangered river in the world, right? There's also another kind of component to this poem as well. And it comes through in the last couple of things that we'll read, which are on the right here. We think of our bodies as being all that we are. I am my body. This thinking helps us disrespect water, air, land, one another. But water is not external from our body, our self. If I was created to hold the Colorado River to carry its rushing inside me, how can I say who I am if the river is gone? What does aha makav mean if the river is emptied to the skeleton of its fish and the miniature sand dunes of its dry silted beds? If the river is a ghost, am I? Spooky! Man, it's like I picked this on purpose. Skeletons, ghosts. It's like I did it on purpose. I didn't, I didn't, but I'm so happy that the references are there. What is being argued at the end of this poem about the relationship between native identity and native land? She's saying like, if the Colorado River, the thing that's a part of her, kind of like makes her who she is, if that's gone, then is like her identity gone too. Yeah, she's questioning it, right? And the implication I think is like, yes. I mean, what we would, what we would tend to think is that yes, and in the absence of the Colorado River, can there be a Mojave people? And I think the answer that she's giving is no, right? If the river is a ghost, am I? I think the answer is, yeah, she would be a ghost. Right? And so where does the poem get to by the end? It's not just a poem about the connection between the body and the water. It's also a poem that has a kind of very intense ecological or environmental consciousness as well. It's making an environmental claim, right? If the Colorado River is endangered, it's not just about losing the water. It's also about losing the body. It's not just about losing the land. It's also about losing the people, right? And so by the end of the poem, this connection between the land and the body becomes very clear through the argument about environmentalism, right? If you lose the river, you lose the identity. If you lose the land, you lose the people. 
what I would suggest to you, and then we'll move on, right, is that when we get to this kind of like environmental portion of the poem, when we get a kind of more um, concrete argument about the ecological ethics that underpin the poem, this is what makes it particularly literal to us. This might be the way that a settler can understand what's happening in this poem. Right? In abstract terms, maybe we can't understand that the river and the body are one. Maybe we want really, really, really badly to make that into a metaphor. Maybe we want really, really badly to understand that logic as magical. But when we're forced to contend with changes to the environment, maybe that's one way that it becomes quite literal and quite real. And maybe that's one way that a settler population can begin to understand that relationship between the land and the body. Does that make sense? You can just say no if it doesn't. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't hurt me if it doesn't. It's a challenge. Yeah, does that make sense, right? We begin this poem, right, with the speaker saying that settler logics cannot make sense of the literalness of the connection between the body and the water. It's not a visual representation. It's not a metaphor. It's not a juxtaposition. Settler logics can't make sense of it. By the end of the poem, we get to a place where we're making ecological or an environmental argument. And what I'm suggesting is when we get into that kind of ecological or environmental argument, maybe that's the moment when that connection can be made more apparent to us as settler readers. Yeah, cool. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's get to this last one. American Arithmetic. I like this poem. I like thinking about it in the abstract as much as I like thinking about the details of it, but let's read it and then I wanna talk, talk to you guys about what you said on the post. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population of America, 0.8% of 100%. Oh, my inefficient country. I do not remember the days before America. I do not remember the days when we were all here. Police kill Native Americans more than any other race. Race is a funny word. Race implies someone will win, implies I have as good a chance of winning as. Who wins the race which isn't a race? Native Americans make up 1.9% of all police killings, higher than any race, and we exist as 0.8% of all Americans. Sometimes race means run. We are not good at math. Can you blame us? We've had an American education. We are Americans and we are less than 1% of Americans. We do a better job of dying by police than we do existing. When we are dying, who should we call? The police or our senator? Please, someone, call my mother. In arithmetic and in America, divisibility has rules. Divide without remainder. At the National Museum of the American Indian, 68% of the collection is from the US. I am doing my best to not become a museum myself. I am doing my best to breathe in and out. I am begging, let me be lonely, but not invisible. But in this American city with all its people, I am Native American, less than one, less than whole. I am less than myself, only a fraction of a body. Let's say I am only a hand. And when I slip it beneath the shirt of my lover, I disappear completely. Interesting end. Maybe we'll get to the end, right? This is, 
kind of should put you in the mind of Dome Riddle, right? That ends in this moment of intimacy, right? Most of the poem is in abstraction or in this case in statistics and in history or in politics, but ends in a moment of intimate person to person relation. That's a pattern. What's going on there? That's a question that we can ask. But before we get to that, what, what's notable or interesting to you about this poem? A bunch of you posted on it, so I'll just open up the, um, the field here. What, what, what stood out to you about this? What spoke to you about this poem? What did you like about it? Um, I really liked the part where she like said, when she talked about race and how she was like, race is a funny word and it implies that someone will win. Yeah. How do we interpret that? This is one of the more enigmatic moments in the poem, right? So Caroline or anyone else, how do you interpret that moment where race is a funny word, race implies someone will win, implies I have a, as good a chance of winning as. What do you make of it? What do you think she's saying? I think I talked about it in my forum post. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Um, I said like how, um, where is it? Like how it kind of goes back to like in a race, like you're all like against each other. And then like with how it is today, like everyone is like pinned against each other and everyone just wants to like, like I feel like the how it says um, implies I have a good chance of winning as, I think it goes back to like, how like with Black Lives Matter and then like the Native Americans being like killed, it can go into um, how whites are like in the lead right. and how people like, it just wants to be like equal instead of like it just being a race. Right, exactly. Because what race, and this goes to what Peyton is mentioning in the chat too, right? The idea here is that race, right? As a competition implies an equal playing field. But what, that's what she means by implies I have as good a chance of winning as, like race as a competition. We're all lining up at the starting line, right? But when the speaker asks who wins the race, which isn't a race, what she's suggesting is that as Peyton mentioned, as Caroline talked us through, that like people are starting at different points on the field, right? That like by virtue of privilege or whatever else, some kind of like status, right? That um, Diaz is marking down to race in this poem, but we could think about a, a bunch of different kind of privileged statuses. By virtue of some privileged status, some people are starting further along the line than others, right? The other implication here is if, if race implies that someone will win, maybe Diaz is suggesting that no one does, right? That like, this is a competition, but nobody actually wins. In fact, like everybody just gets divided and what we get at the end of the day is a really bad situation. So yeah, I like that part too, kind of interesting. I hadn't really thought in those terms, but again, like that insight that Diaz is working with, that comes from an understanding of how race as a word operates in two registers, right? Race as a kind of competition where we're sprinting along jogging as the case may be and race as a kind of marker pseudo-biological marker of difference what else what do other people like about this um poem what surprised it surprised you about this poem 
either at the level of language or at the level of content. Um, based on like language, I think it's also surprising that all her other poems were very difficult, and this one has like a that it's much more simple, and I can't help but like wonder why. Yeah, thank you, Anna. That's a great question. I'm glad that you brought us there. And that's one of the reasons why I started with two like really difficult and strange poems and then ended with this one. I think it's a really interesting question. This is something that Brie mentioned on the um, post. She's not here today, but something Brie mentioned on the forum. And a couple of you mentioned as well is that you picked this one because it was kind of simple, right? It made sense to you. It's also like a really important topic. But given what we know of Diaz's poetry, right? She's clearly like really intelligent, elusive. She makes a lot of references to a lot of different traditions, right? She, she could write this any way she wanted to. She could turn this into a vast metaphor. She could turn this into an epic poem. Like she could be using words that we don't understand. She could be appealing to Mojave myth. She could be appealing to Greek myth. She could be appealing to history. She doesn't. As Anna tells us, she just keeps us in this kind of really simplistic mode, really simplistic language. Why? We know she could do it otherwise. So why this poem so simple? Why is this language necessary for this poem? I think she really wants to get the point across, like the quote, uh, we are Americans and we are less than 1% of Americans. We do a better job of dying by police than we do existing, which is just like super heavy and like impactful. And it's Peyton, I think the implication of what you're saying is that it's all the more super heavy and impactful because of the simplicity of the language. Right? Is that right? Yeah, so like the idea here is that if we were kind of using a lot of figurative language, a lot of metaphor, a lot of kind of creative um, approaches in this poem, maybe the kind of like hammer blow of that reality would be lost or it would be harder to understand or ascertain, right? And other thoughts on that, on the use of the kind of really simplistic and basic language here? especially in comparison to her other poems. Okay, I think that's really the big thing here is that like the simplistic language of this poem is meant to impress upon us the seriousness of the topic. And it's probably also the case, and I think mentioned, many of you mentioned this on the post, that like you don't necessarily know these statistics, right? That like Native Americans percent, on a percentage basis uh, are the most frequently killed by the police, right? Like, so if we don't as readers or as an audience of Diaz's poems really understand these statistics, if we don't know what's happening in society, it's all the more incumbent upon Diaz to use language that's really simple and really basic to get across these ideas to us. So that's one, one way to think about why this language here, right, to just answer Anna's question basically, like why this language here when so much of Diaz's poetry is so complex and complicated? What else? What about the ending? Can we just end there? 
what about the ending? It's strange. It's just like Dome Riddle, right? But in this American city with all its people, I am Native American, less than one, less than whole. I am less than myself, only a fraction of a body, let's say. I am only a hand. Okay, that's all kind of pretty much conversant with the rest of the poem, right? But then stands a break and the last two lines, and when I slip it beneath the shirt of my lover, I disappear completely. What happens to the poem here? What changes in terms of its tone, in terms of its tenor, in terms of the sense that we get of the speaker? What changes here? Think about the difference between where we, where we start in this poem and where we end. Can anybody describe that difference? Um, in the beginning and for most of the poem, it's very factual and like evidential, with a lot of evidence in the end, it kind of ends on more of an emotional note. Good, 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 good. On an emotional note. Why might we want to end on an emotional note? You're right to suggest that the vast majority of this poem, while intense, right? While like really putting these facts and figures in front of our face in the way that Peyton talked through. You're right to suggest that it's factual, it's statistic, it's evidence-based, right? There's really no emotion there, at least not on the surface. But at the end, we get, Anna, I think you're right to suggest a highly emotional moment. Why end with emotion? In a poem that by and large has been cold, hard facts. I feel like people can relate more with emotions of someone else than they can to other facts that are presented that they didn't know before. Why, Kieran? I agree. Why? Because, I mean, for me and a lot of other people, we didn't know, like, the facts of Native Americans and, like, all that that the poem presented. But we can understand the emotional part of it at the end and we can, like, empathize with it. Yeah, you can, you can kind of, yeah, there's a humanity to it to go to Peyton's point in the chat, right? You can maybe not, um, maybe these abstract statistical models don't necessarily connect with all of us immediately, but we've potentially all had an experience or we could at least imagine an experience where kind of like, not to get too graphic here, but we lose ourselves in the embrace of another. Right, that we lose an aspect of ourselves in the embrace of another. Right, so what Diaz is trying to kind of get us to by the end of the poem is this kind of relatable human place that might allow us through emotion, through that appeal to affect, through that appeal to emotion, might allow us to better understand Native American experience. Right. Maybe we can only get to the place where we better understand the beginning of this poem by having the end of it bring us to a place of emotion and humanity. All right. It's been fun. We've done a lot of poetry in the last couple of weeks. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten something out of it. It's tough. Not everybody likes poetry, but I hope that you found something to kind of grasp onto and to write a paper about and think through in an interesting way. Anything I can help you with on the last second here? Any questions, concerns, comments? All right, it's been fun.